0: everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with none other than Anthony Pomp Pompliano. If you have been anywhere near Bitcoin, crypto, CNBC, or even logged into Twitter, you're probably familiar with Pomp. Pomp is an entrepreneur and investor who has built and sold numerous companies ran product and growth teams at Facebook, and manages a portfolio valued at more than $500 million in early stage tech companies. Some of his investments include Coinbase, eToro, BlockFi, Airbnb, and many, many more. He has a fantastic newsletter, podcast, and social platform as well that I've linked in the description and Medium article. He's especially known for his extreme passion for Bitcoin Having been part of the rallying cry of the last year, laser eyes and all, pushing his chips all in and allocating a huge portion of his net worth to Bitcoin. In today's episode, we cover his Bitcoin thesis and the two events that got him so bullish on the asset last spring. Why Buffett and Charlie Munger disagreeing with him gives him more conviction. How he thinks about generating outsized returns and his barbell capital allocation strategy his investments in startups like Strike, and nearly kidnapping a founder that he liked so much, the simple ways he's grown such a massive following and influence, and so much more. Let's get started. Anthony Pompliano, welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It is great having you on the show today in the wake of a wild, wild year in the markets, in crypto markets, blockchain, and more. Absolutely, thanks so much for having me. So I have to start, Pomp, where are you in the world today and where you've been working from in this just whirlwind year?
1: Uh, I was in New York through the end of uh, last year, but uh, moved to Miami and, uh, and enjoying the sun. So i uh, sitting here in Miami right now. <laughs>
0: pretty jealous. So we just had Mayor Suarez on the podcast a couple months ago. I'll be sure to link that episode in the description. He did a great job selling Miami. He almost convinced Miguel, my co-host, and I to study abroad there. I kind of regret not doing it in hindsight. One quick question for you there. Is the hype real in
1: Miami? Look, every day there's more founders and investors moving here. And if I remember the data correctly, in the latest YC batch, there was more founders in Miami than in San Francisco. And so I think that there's always the possibility that people decide to reverse a trend and, uh, and leave. But most people I know are buying homes or uh, taking you know 12 plus month leases. And so I think that uh, this is a trend that is only going to accelerate and I don't see it changing anytime soon.
0: Yeah, very excited to see where it goes. As someone moving to SF myself, I'm not as excited about this mass exodus, though I'm hoping to be contrarian and right for once. And of course we have Harry Hurst of PIPE coming on the show as well who is huge into Miami he has just moved there and Pipe is one of the fastest growing fintechs in the game right now.
1: Harry is fantastic.
0: He really is. He's a great interview. He's a great guy. So to start, I think most people know you as the Bitcoin guy. You have had an amazing amazing journey over the last, you know, 5-7 years diving into Bitcoin. I would like to just get started. What were maybe, you know, the two or three most important moments early in your journey into Bitcoin or people that you met that, you know, convinced you that this movement and this technology was real?
1: Yeah, the first one definitely was uh, just started doing something. So I heard about Bitcoin in 2014. I did nothing. In 2016, I started mining, but I actually started mining Ether, not Bitcoin. Didn't know the difference, you know, just bought some computing power and uh, started doing it. And then from there, I would say the other two big moments were in December of 2018, I put 50% of my net worth into Bitcoin, uh, which luckily ended up being the bottom of that bear market. And then again, coming out of uh, kind of the COVID crisis, where there was that massive liquidity crisis and sell-off, I basically went from fifty percent to uh, over ninety percent, about ninety-five, ninety-six percent of my net worth into Bitcoin. And so, in hindsight, really worked well. And so, I would say those are probably the three moments.
0: So you bought in what was it, December twenty eighteen? The price was probably what three, four, five grand at the time.
1: I think the uh, the big purchase was made right around thirty-two hundred dollars. And then, you know, continued buying from there, but kind of there was two big moments. Uh, one was that purchase in December of 2018, and then again, kind of April and May of uh, 2020.
0: Fantastic. So I think if anyone has been watching the news the last few weeks, they of course saw the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. It is kind of this Mecca type of a pilgrimage every year, though not in COVID years, for financial professionals all over the world. So Charlie Munger, you know, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, had an absolute Bitcoin takedown at the annual meeting. And a lot of people, of course, get nervous when Warren and Charlie don't like something. But you actually kind of doubled down and said it you know made you more bullish on the space than ever. And you also mentioned a meeting with a certain Wall Street Titan in 2019 who blew off Bitcoin. What happened in these two instances and why does it make you so excited that these investing legends are taking you know, the opposite stance as you?
1: Yeah, so I think that the first thing is understanding where do outsized returns come from, right? They come from doing something different than the crowd and being right. On top of that, it also requires somebody who has deep conviction in something and can go for long periods of time and appear to be wrong in public, right? And so if you look at, um, let's say, Warren Buffett and uh, and Charlie Munger, they're some of the most respected investors in history, right? There's no denying uh, just the incredible run that those two guys had. At the same time, they haven't beat the S&P 500 in over a decade. And so they just, they were used to investing in a different time, right? It wasn't a digital economy. It was very much an analog world that they uh, had invested in. Uh, They were some of the best, if not the best to do it. But we're in a different world today. We're in this digital economy. And so they completely missed the tech companies. And I think that they'd be the first ones to say that, right? That's not their strong suit. And so I joke all the time, and I think, Munger's about 97, 98 years old, or I think Buffett's 90. I don't know anyone who goes to a 90 year old or a 95, 98 year old and ask them for technology advice, right? It, it, it's not a knock on them, it's just of course we shouldn't expect that. And, and so I think that having kind of their perspective constantly put out across the headlines, it's great clickbait, right? Everyone wants to click on the articles that say, you know, Charlie Munger says this, or Warren Buffett says this, but they're just wrong and uh, that's okay. Uh, That doesn't take away from, obviously, the historic run that they've had. It's just that in this one sector of the financial markets, uh, when it comes to Bitcoin and digital currencies, uh, myself, other Bitcoiners, other people in this industry understand it better than them. And that's okay because I wouldn't go and try to understand how to buy public equities through a value investing perspective, right? Like, I understand that I'm not an expert at that I have no advantage at that. So I think that's kind of the, the thought process when I see those guys doing it. It's just you have to separate away kind of the emotional connection, I think, and, and frankly, the aspirational nature uh, and the heroism that we uh, apply to uh, to those guys with just the facts of you know what the asset is and the underlying fundamentals and the likelihood that they actually don't understand it. And then when it comes to other Wall Street legends, in and I can't honestly remember if it was at the end of 2018 or, or uh, kind of first half of 2019. Um, I went with, uh, with my partner at the time, Mark Yusko, and we met with all of these legends, right? I mean, I literally have a camera roll on my phone. Uh, I took a picture with every single one of them when I left. And the reason I did it was because none of them listened, right? Literally none of them listened. And so there was one in particular that we met with. The guy definitely just took the meeting out of respect for Mark and was very nice. It was about a 12 minute meeting. Six of the minutes were them uh, asking how each other's families were doing. Uh, and then about six minutes was, you know, me explaining, you know, hey, this Bitcoin thing, blah, blah, whatever. And he basically said, that's great. Uh, I'll take a look at it, but probably not my thing. And we were out, right? And so I walked outside and, and there was two ways to react to a meeting like that, right? One is either uh, you're upset, you're like, you question yourself. Or two, and, and the path that I chose was, that's the opportunity right? That that is the disruption that we were about to see is that you've got this investing legend, but somebody who just doesn't understand, doesn't have the intellectual curiosity to go learn it. And so that person has now capitulated and is now in Bitcoin. But at the time, that to me was the opportunity. And I think that that played out to be true.
0: Yeah. And if anything over the last year has shown it is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, distributed ledger technology, and of course, DeFi seem like they are here to stay. So you were right. So I am curious to see what, you know, in 2019 was your pitch at that time, you know, how were you laying out kind of your macro thesis for this technology moving forward?
1: I mean, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, I was writing publicly about it at the time, which is probably the craziest part was it wasn't just something that I kind of believed behind closed doors. It was also uh, something that I was willing to kind of put my reputation on. But the thought process was the following. One, you have a fixed supply asset and demand is continuing to increase, so therefore price has to go up to accommodate everyone. And in 2019 specifically, I started to really write about this idea of what I called rocket fuel for Bitcoin. And that rocket fuel was uh, in the latter half of 2019, you started to see just signs of late stage capitalism, right, late stage economy. So you saw everything from inverted yield curves, you saw gyrations in uh, the repo markets. you saw a high number of CEOs leaving their jobs. You know all these issues and All I basically said was, look, I don't know when it ends. I can't tell the future. I don't think anyone else can. There will be some event. The market will turn over and we'll go into a bear market in in public equities. And when that happens, we live in a world where central banks will have to step in. They will have to manipulate interest rates down, and they will have to print money. And it's just we're addicted to that market manipulation and so uh, obviously i nor anyone else foresaw that there was gonna be a global pandemic nobody foresaw uh, that it would happen so quickly and you know i frankly i underestimated with the violence of action that the central banks and, and government administrations would take so i didn't think that they would actually put interest rates to zero they did uh, in those two emergency rate cuts and then also uh, i thought that they would print you know hundreds of billions maybe a trillion they ended up printing trillions of dollars and so my thesis at the time was basically if they do that anywhere near the same time of that may 2020 bitcoin having you're going to have a supply shock and a demand shock because not only is the supply shock in the system going to occur but also this market manipulation is going to force people to go seek out a kind of a sound money asset like bitcoin and so as we sit here recording this in may of 2021 It's frankly pretty scary how accurate that was, right? So we got the global pandemic. uh, They manipulate the interest rates down. They print trillions of dollars right into the teeth of that Bitcoin halving. I think the price around the halving was like $8,300. Today, we're sitting somewhere between $55,000 and
0: $60,000. Hello, listeners. As you can tell, this episode was recorded in about mid to late May, hence the stale price here. Carry on.
1: I think the price around the halving was like $8,300. Today, we're sitting somewhere between $55,000 and $60,000 about a year later. And so, you know, naturally, it's um, pretty interesting to watch play out. But I don't think that it's done. I don't think they're done manipulating the uh, economy and uh, monetary policy. Uh, And I don't think that Bitcoin's kind of, you know, finished in terms of where it'll top out in this bull market either.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Tim Draper... Legendary crypto investor and billionaire and venture capitalist. He was just on the show and has his price target firm at $250,000. So he's at least willing to, to put a flag in the sand at, at a certain price. So, one thing I want to return to that you mentioned, you know, that Bitcoin is, of course, a fixed supply asset. You're a big proponent of, you know, chain analysis, coinflow holder analysis as a great way to kind of get some sort of signal in this often very noisy market. So some estimates say that 78% of Bitcoin's supply is now considered relatively illiquid and that, you know, that number is only growing as people with so-called strong hands with no selling history and no plans to sell continue. So this is, of course, going to squeeze supply even more. How do you think this will impact Bitcoin over the coming years, both positively and negatively as there's, you know, fewer people selling?
1: Yeah, look, I I think that this is what happens, right, is as you go through a bear market, uh, the strong hands accumulate Bitcoin from the weak hands, they're strong hands for a reason, so they're not going to sell. And as that kind of price continues to increase, you start to loosen up some of that supply. Right. So historically, as price has gone up, you get more and more people who are willing to sell and eventually you exhaust all the sellers and then you kind of go back into a bear market. Well, what's fascinating about what's happening right now is we've gone up, you know, 600 percent or so since that halving, yet we actually see more and more Bitcoin going into the strong hands. So there's this question of this super cycle idea, right? Which is, it's not like the last couple of bull markets. Instead, it's something that is actually even more positive or more bullish. And really when you just look at the on-chain metrics, it's pretty incredible, right? I I think that it's, you know, 60 to 80% are the estimates, depending on who you ask, of of Bitcoin that hasn't moved or or won't move. And that includes, you know, in March of 2020, Bitcoin dropped 50% in a single day and people didn't sell. It's gone up 600, 800% since that day, uh, and people still have not sold. And so when you start to look at that, you have to ask yourself, you know, why? And it's because they ultimately believe that Bitcoin is going to be the global reserve currency. They believe it is that global store of value. And they see that any Bitcoin that they sell today, they'll regret later. And so when you get that type of psychological kind of consensus around an asset, and demand continues to increase for that asset the US dollar price is gonna to continue to go up for a long period of time, especially over a long time period.
0: Yeah, agreed, Pomp. I think no matter where you stand on Bitcoin, you have to recognize the scarcity of the asset. And with its you know, proven now decade-long staying power and having gone quite a few market cycles, natural economics will tell you what happens when you know there's shrinking supply of a valued asset. So now I'd like to talk a bit about your investments outside of Bitcoin. You know, you've invested in a number of tech, fintech, and crypto companies over the years through personal investments, Pomp Investments, as well as through Morgan Creek. Can you tell us a bit about your work with Morgan Creek, your investment vehicles, and maybe a most exciting company or two?
1: Yeah. So for uh, the last two and a half years or so, a partner and I had, Jason Williams had partnered up with Morgan Creek, which is Wall Street hedge fund. We created something called Morgan Creek Digital in a joint venture, uh, raised about $110 million, a little bit more, and uh, went out and we invested. And so we took that capital. We invested into about 15, 18% of it in Bitcoin. We invested in BlockFi, eToro, Coinbase, Strike, just a whole number of, uh, of great businesses.
0: That's a pretty good lineup of companies.
1: <laughs> yeah, we we uh, we, we did alright for ourselves, and then in uh, in Q three, I decided to uh, to kind of strike out on my own, and uh, I've been investing my own capital, and then raised some money alongside it and have really focused on just trying to find who are building those disruptive products and businesses. And so uh, have, you know, made, I have made about 30 investments since I've left, invested um, you know, close to $200 million so far, and continue just to deploy capital as quickly as I can into what I think is gonna be a decade long kind of innovation cycle in this industry. And so it's, uh, it's pretty fun to kind of get to meet all these people and, and see what they're working on. But I think that this is uh, th- this is how innovation occurs. This is how outsized returns are created and captured. So that's what I'm focused on a day-to-day basis.
0: That's awesome. And then so could you maybe dive into one or two recent companies that you've invested maybe at, at an earlier stage? You know, one investment that I've read about is a company called Strike. I think that'd be a great place to start.
1: Yeah. So Jack Maulers uh, is probably one of the best known uh, Lightning developers, Bitcoin Lightning Network. I met Jack. He had actually a whole different product. He was building a kind of a wallet product. And I just knew Jack was special. Literally, I met him and we joked that I kidnapped him. We, we met, we recorded a podcast. and I said, hey, man, you'll to go to dinner. And he's like, well, I got to go back to my uh, hotel and get changed. And I was like, no problem. I'll go with you and so i literally like my wife and my now wife and i went and we waited in the <laughs> lobby while he went upstairs he got changed love it we then went to dinner uh and then i was like hey man you want to go to this party and we went to a party and like I, I was just like this kid's special and so we stayed in touch and and you know i tried to help him with some stuff and at one point we were talking and i just said hey you should raise some money and you know he's like well i don't know where to start with that i was like well i'll give you some money and, and he had one other group uh cmt that uh, that wanted to invest and then he raised a uh, a seed round and then I led the uh, the Series A, and essentially what uh, what Strike does is it uses the Bitcoin Lightning Network as payment rails. So if you want to, let's say I'm in the United States and you're somewhere in uh, in the UK, uh, and I want to send you 20 US dollars, I basically punch into the app, say 20, you know, send 20 US dollars to uh, to Ryan, and then uh, you receive those same 20 us dollars in the euro equivalent so i sent dollars you received euros well how does that happen and it happens instantaneously and completely for free what they're actually doing is they're executing a conversion of my dollars into bitcoin they're sending the bitcoin across the lightning network and then they're converting that bitcoin back into euros and depositing it with you and so because you're using this uh, kind of censorship resistant technology as a payment rail, you now can send money anywhere in the world, instantaneous and completely for free. And you also can do it at any amount. So if you go to your bank and you say to the bank, I want to send $1, they say, we can't do that. Right. But you can do that with strike. You can actually send a penny if you want to. And so now you can send any amount completely for free and instantaneous. And we just think that's a massive advantage in the payment space. And so we'll continue to kind of work to see if we can build multi-billion dollar business there uh, and ultimately build the next great payments application uh, in a way that is highly disruptive to the incumbents.
0: Yeah, I think I discussed you know a similar concept to this with Simon Taylor of 11FS. That you know the major wave of fintech, you know one maybe was just improving the UX and process and transparency and fees on existing rails, the Revoluts, the Venmos, the the Wises of the world, you know, kind of innovating off MoneyGram, but the next wave will come from sending money, you know, really at the speed of an email over new crypto based rails, a totally new process outside of the traditional financial system. So when you're looking at these companies, Pomp, you know, what are you hoping to see? that gives you that conviction in investing? Is it parts of a business model, you know, the story? Are you focused on a big TAM or something else?
1: I don't care about the business, frankly. It's all about the person, right? And the reason is the best people usually will pick the best markets. They'll figure out how to build the best products. And so you just gotta bet on talent, right? And Jack's a perfect example. Uh, When I invested, he was actually working on a different product, right? It's related, but he was actually working on a different product. And now here we are, he's got a business that's valued, you know, the nine figures and, uh, and has built this amazing business. And so I, I think that's the kind of perfect example where uh, when you meet a founder, everything could change. The market they're going after, the product, you know, who their competitors are, all that kind of stuff. But I think that ultimately what you start to see is that just the best people win. And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people that I think can be critical thinkers and problem solvers. They can handle any obstacle that comes up uh, and ultimately they'll be successful.
0: Completely agree. So one thing I would like to transition to, it's, you know, Growing in popularity every month and has really had a moment over this last year is DeFi, decentralized finance. For some of our listeners who might not be familiar, could you just give a very quick overview of what DeFi is, and then maybe you know a project or two that you find particularly interesting?
1: Yeah, so DeFi is, uh, stands for decentralized finance. And if you think of all of the different key pieces of the finance industry, right, you have everything from the currency to the exchanges to lending, uh, all of that. In almost every single case, there is some sort of third party or middleman. And so decentralized finance is basically the belief that we can use software to remove the need for those middlemen or kind of rent seekers. And we can create a more automated kind of flat type of financial system. And so if you think of Bitcoin, Bitcoin was the first DeFi application, right? It's decentralized money. There's now all sorts of decentralized exchanges, decentralized lending protocols, etc. And really what these engineers are doing, right? I always say that technologists are conducting an all-out assault on Wall Street. And the technologists are winning, and they're winning in a very big way. And the reason is because you have Wall Street, which is betting on humans to do a lot of these jobs, and you have technologists who are using software code. And so if you give me an opportunity to bet on software versus humans, I'll pick the software almost every day of the week, right? And so I think that's really kind of the most simplistic way to view it. In terms of kind of products or projects Uh, that I think are really interesting. There's frankly a ton of them. The one that I've most recently invested in maybe is a better way to answer it. So uh, I invested in something called Sovereign Sovereign basically has a a protocol that allows you to build decentralized financial applications on top of Bitcoin. The general idea is if you have decentralized kind of censorship resistant money, and then you vertically integrate that with decentralized exchanges, decentralized lending, et cetera, uh, there's a lot of value that can be created and captured there. And so I think that that's kind of a good example of just core infrastructure in a financial system that's being created all around this decentralized kind of sound money in Bitcoin and uh, so far, so good. The business has uh, has been kind of growing nicely. The products are getting adopted, and uh, we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. So for the listeners, we had Mike Dudas of Paxos and the Block on the podcast, as well as the aforementioned Simon Taylor just a few months ago. Each of them did cover DeFi basics, and there's also a great Wharton white paper on DeFi that I'll. Link in the episode, probably the clearest, you know, explanation of DeFi out there in a concise manner. I'll be sure to link it all in the episode. So, Pomp, before moving on to the next part of the episode where, you know, we'll get into your Twitter prowess and marketing tips. I have one quick question. You know, you have this extreme portfolio concentration in Bitcoin, right? You know, why? For someone who's so deep in this space. Why don't you own, you know, Ethereum, XRP, or one of the many other tokens out there? You know, it seems Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that you own.
1: Yeah, so I recently wrote about this. I call it the crypto barbell strategy. And generally the idea is as follows. One is I want to hold majority of my portfolio in the safest, most conservative asset in the industry, which is Bitcoin, so that's what I do there. And then on occasion, what I will do is I will make a kind of smaller, investments into the highest risk assets that I can find. I'm looking for a hundred to a thousand X return. And so I can make a smaller allocation, uh, but because of the asymmetry can become a pretty material kind of aggregate amount. And, and so I've done that with, uh, with pretty good success over the last few years. And, you know, when it comes to things like Ethereum or XRP or, or whatever, that's kind of in the top, but it's not the most conservative. The way that I look at it is in my conservative bucket, I want the most conservative, right? I don't want kind of the second or third most conservative. I want the most conservative. Um, and so that's where I choose Bitcoin. And then when I look at those assets from the high risk bucket, uh, the return profile just isn't the same. Right. Even though they can go up five or 10x, there's unlikely to be 100 to 1000x 1, left in the time frame that I have. And so I'm always careful to say, like, look, that's my strategy. Right. It's no better or worse than anybody else's strategy. And the strategies that people pursue are very dependent on what their goals are, their financial position are the assets and resources they have, etc. For me, it works for me. Uh, It's worked for a while. I think that it'll continue to work. Uh, So that's what I pursue. But, you know, I've got friends, some of my best friends pursue very different strategies and it works for them. So I I think it's just more personal preference and and kind of personal goals than anything. Uh, But that barbell strategy is kind of how I think about it
0: hmm no, it's it's great insight. And Chamath Palahapatiya, who I think all of our listeners are familiar with, has often talked about his own barbell strategy of investing. Obviously it's not all in crypto as yours is, but relatively similar principles. So as mentioned before, I would like to talk briefly about, you know, just kind of your marketing prowess. Over the last few years, you've really created an amazing, you know, just platform around yourself. I think, you know, for any fintech founders out there that are listening right now, what are, you know, some frameworks or tools that you used over the last year or two to really build this great following that you now have?
1: Pretty simple. Just be yourself. Be as authentic as you possibly can. And if people like you in the real world, they'll like you online, right? I mean, if they hate you in the real world, they're going to hate you online. And And then I think the second thing is just you can never create enough content right like uh just people are so worried like oh i tweeted one time a day like i don't want to overwhelm the audience the audience doesn't care they don't even know you exist Right. And so I think that ultimately what you find is people who are authentic and people who create lots and lots of content kind of overwhelm the algorithms and platforms end up building the biggest audiences. And so I don't know necessarily that like the goal is to build the biggest audience um, as much as it is to build an audience that kind of serves the purposes that you want the audience for. But but definitely I think those are the two things that I focused on that have uh, have kind of led the most to uh, to kind of success on that front.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there any creator tools that you use, you know, that you find especially powerful?
1: I use Twitter, I use the iPhone, uh, and I use my brain. That's about it. Um, for me, every, everything kind of- The comes, holy trinity. Yeah, everything kind of comes off Twitter, right? So like I've got a, um, I think I've got the number one technology kind of email on Substack, right? Right. I built that all on Twitter, right? I was able to basically continue to tweet out things I was writing, tweet out the link, get people to sign up, and, and so I was able to build a pretty big, uh, you know, email. The podcast really benefited from the email and Twitter, right? So everything came from uh, that Twitter account. And frankly, just, you know, whatever I thought, I just said it. And uh, what you find is if people don't like it, they leave right? So like, I I stopped trying to like, please everybody. And I just started being myself. and, uh, And here we are.
0: And then how do you I mean, I've subscribed to your newsletter, there's some great analysis on there. And especially in an industry with so much noise, and there's so many different sources flying around. This is a great way to stay in tune every day. I'll be sure to link it in the episode description. How do you think about what to write? It's really good content churned out, you know, almost
1: daily. I literally wake up, I have no clue what I'm going to write. I scroll through a couple of news articles. I scroll through Twitter. I pick something and then I write. And I usually can do it in about 45 minutes. About 15 minutes is trying to figure out what to write. And it takes me about 30 minutes just to actually put together the piece. And uh, and then I'm done. You know, look, I've been doing it for three years, right? So at, at some point, it just becomes natural. And you become very efficient at uh, kind of picking a thesis or, you know, or kind of topic to write about, structuring it, finding, you know, kind of any links or anything that you want to put in there. And I just try to be hyper-efficient with my time in general. And so uh, being able to kind of crank that out in about 45 minutes, maybe an hour on a bad day, it ends up being a pretty uh, valuable thing, an exercise to do.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think when people ask, you know, Miguel and I for tips, how to grow your podcast, how to grow Twitter files, et cetera, consistency, is the number one thing that I always say. And I really admire other creators now who have this type of consistency because it is much harder than it looks. And every week you're gonna have different things pushing and pulling you in so many directions, but the consistency has definitely been key. Well, Pomp, you've reached the final round of the episode, which is a rapid fire question round. We've got about 10 or so questions for you. You know, Max, 10 to 20 second answer each. Are you ready? Let's do
1: it. All right, first one, fintech hero. Fintech hero? Um, I gotta, I'm got. i not going to pick one. I think it's just literally the founders I work with on a daily basis. Building a company is damn near impossible. And so I'm just blown away by all of these founders who are able to kind of stick with it for years uh, and build these really successful businesses. So I don't necessarily have just one hero. I think just all of them that I work with.
0: All right, that's a very safe political answer. I like that. It's true. How about... Uh... <laughs> Oh, it's good. Satoshi Nakamoto. Maybe that would be my
1: answer. Satoshi would probably (laughs) be my answer.
0: Oh, that's a cop out, but we'll take it. (laughs) All right. Next one. What
1: is the first fintech app that you ever downloaded? First fintech app that I ever downloaded? I have no clue. Probably Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whatever like the banking app was, it probably was the very first one. Uh, the first FinTech website I probably ever used was like in, uh, in high school, trying to like gamble on sports or something. If that can, if you can count that as, uh, as investing slash gambling. Um, <laughs> uh, now look, you know, for a long time, I, I, uh, I frankly didn't do a lot with FinTech. Um, it, it was just kind of my normal, you know, banking stuff. And then I realized, whoa, this stuff sucks. So then started investing more in it.
0: <laughs> Love it. All right. How about other than Bitcoin best investment you've ever made?
1: Best investment I ever made. She's not here, so I can say it's definitely my wife. Somebody told me a long time ago, there's, you know, very, very few life decisions that you have to make and get right. Who you end up with uh, as a partner is probably uh, the most important. Drives a lot of kind of things that happen in your life, both financially and, and not. So I, I'd say that uh, she'll make fun of me for saying it um, when she, uh, she listens to this. Uh, from a financial investment standpoint, you know, Bitcoin for sure. I've done very good uh, or very well on uh, digital art. So did, did a lot on that. And then I'd have to say probably BlockFi. As it stands right now, BlockFi, you know, multi-billion dollar business. Uh, it's just been the one that I've kind of pressed the hardest. And so, you know, that, that one tends to, uh, to probably stick out too.
0: Great one. And of course, great answer with the wife. I'm sure she will really appreciate that answer. All right. It's true. I listen.
1: I used to hear people say that and think they were full of shit, frankly. Uh, now, now, you know, you, you, uh, I'm married and uh, you, you start to realize, wow, yeah, my yeah. life could be a lot different if I had uh, gone down a different path.
0: Definitely. So next question, let's say you're suddenly transported and you're 22 years old in the year 2021, graduating this May or June. What is your first move after
1: graduating? Where do you go with your career? The advice I give myself is go bigger and have no fucking fear. I think the action I would do is I would immediately <laughs> just get into crypto, right? Like today, that's what I would do and, and figure out how, how to do that, where to do that, whether it was start something and try to invest, uh, go work somewhere, just like go make a career bet on the industry that is you know relatively small today, but likely to be really, really big in the future. And so I think that's probably the best kind of framework way to think about it is just Attach yourself to an industry that's going to get much bigger over time, but there's still so much kind of low hanging fruit and hasn't been arbitraged away.
0: All right. Like that one last few coming up. First one, what's the hardest decision you've ever had to make?
1: The hardest decision I've ever had to make. I don't know. I, I don't make very many hard decisions. Like I'm one of these guys who uh, I've got friends who will sit and they'll literally, uh, you know, pontificate over decisions for like ever. I'm much more of like a, what I call like a micro, uh, course corrector. So I generally know the direction I want to go. I'll make a decision. I'll quickly understand, Hey, good decision, bad decision. And then I'll course correct from that and and we'll kind of keep pushing in the right direction. So, um, I, I think that frankly, a lot of the quote unquote hardest decisions I just don't make a decision, right? Like I choose inaction in those situations uh, and I wait for more information and then that ends up being a a successful way to, uh, to kind of go through life. So it's a kind of a weird answer, but I think that's kind of the way I think about it.
0: Yeah. And then last one, how do people get in touch? How do they get involved with everything that you're building in this space?
1: just follow me on Twitter. I can't help myself. I tweet about everything I do. So uh, (laughs) if you follow me on Twitter, you'll, you'll eventually see whatever nonsense I'm up to.
0: Very true, and that's a great answer. That's how I found most of the nonsense that you're up to. Well, Pomp, it was great having you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I want to thank you for coming on, sharing your story, especially in the midst of this next great crypto boom. Very excited for the next decade ahead for for the ecosystem. So thank you again for coming on.
1: Absolutely, thanks so much for having me, Ryan.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.